zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the '80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we'll be discussing Lion of the Desert, a.k.a. Omar Mukhtar, Lion of the Desert, released April 17th, 1981. It was written by H.A.L. Craig, with additional material from David Butler and Paul Thompson, directed by Mustafa Akkad, and released by United Film Distribution. The film was obviously banned upon its release in Italy, in 1982, with the claim that it was damaging to the honor of the army. In June of 2009, it played for the first time on television in Italy, coinciding with a visit from Libya's then-leader, Muammar Gaddafi, who also personally financed the film. 5,000 military personnel were loaned to play both sides of the conflict by the Gaddafi regime. At a cost of $35 million, it managed to make back a single million in its worldwide grosses. Had it succeeded financially, it would have been followed with a second epic story called Saladin about the first sultan of Egypt and Syria. Was it just marketing that was bad with it? or I think the problem is that it was a supremely anti-Italy movie, mm-hmm. and Italy is a country that we're friendly with, and so people kind of made an agreement to not allow it to, like, it was, it was just considered an anti-Italian film. Hmm. even though it takes place at a time where Italy was doing terrible things right. to the yeah, Libyans. They no were different. fascists, and it's okay to hate fascists. Yeah. yeah. It's no different from a, a Nazi movie. We watched The Formula. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm not 100% clear, but I think the reasoning is because Gaddafi was a dictator, and he had produced the film. That's probably mm. pretty accurate. Yeah. And they were just like, let's not cooperate with this guy. Let's let his movie fail. And he probably also didn't care, because what's... 35 million dollars to Gaddafi. yeah but you know as far as i can tell though based on the wikipedia pages that i was reading it doesn't seem inaccurate no it, it's very accurate it, it seems like i have a tendency in these really long historical dramas to, to just, distract yourself with the facts <laughs> well i just go to the the wikipedia pages and i read ahead a little bit and it probably spoils the movie for me because <laughs> i knew absolutely nothing about the you know Italian invasion and occupancy of, of Libya. Yeah. But I, you know, I'm like, oh, is this, okay, how much of this is accurate? Is this real? And then, you know, and then I read ahead, I'm like, this seems pretty spot on, yeah. even though it was financed by somebody we didn't agree with. Right. And it, it just seems like a, a million worldwide. That's crazy for a movie with this cast. Yeah. yeah so it's it bonkers. was kept out of theaters. Um, I don't know about that. It's it's possible that it just didn't get the wide release that it would have because it came from United Film Distribution instead of a but studio. But additionally, as as a theater owner, I am probably not going to want to put a three hour historical drama in my theater just because it's not generally a money maker and it's taking up a lot of screen time. But if it's got Anthony Quinn and John Gilgood and Rod Oliver Steiger Reed. and Oliver Reed, like these yeah. are huge names even at the time. I guess I don't know. It's probably something I wouldn't run for very long yeah. and very many screens. Yeah, you definitely you you don't want to book the longer movies anyway because you get less run times out of them. Yeah. You know, you don't you can only play it four times in a day. Right. It's not it's not the popcorn popping movie that yeah. <laughs> that's gonna keep people coming. Although I did want popcorn during this movie. I think you want popcorn during every movie. That's true. We start in a Middle Eastern desert. Camels are marched through a shot. We see flowering fields near mountains, a herd of grazing sheep. The opening credits offer an impressive cast that we just talked about. A scene of farmers piling up dried crops is interrupted by an explosion and a quick montage of war being fought. So, uh, I thought this movie took place like Lawrence of Arabia times. Yeah. (laughs) And so, or, or even earlier, like I was like, oh, okay. I, okay. I wasn't expecting any of this. That Uh, it was going to be like forties. Yeah. 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 It is kind of during Lawrence of Arabia time, though. But that was World War One. It is, is World War One, but this movie starts in 1911. Right, but it just it, and then it jumps. The story picks up, and in, then it jumps 20 yeah, yeah. years later. But yeah. I'm just saying, like, it's not that far from 
that, right, that but, era but, and that, that conflict. But Lawrence Arby wasn't fighting Nazis. Yeah. In this, our 20th century, almost every nation in the world has at some time been in conflict. The oppressors and the oppressed, the victors and the vanquished, the people of war. A tragic indictment of our civilization. A time when much of the world was looking for ways to increase their influence, power, and riches. Full of dreams for the restoration of the glory that was Rome, in 1911, Italy joins the hunt for territory. Libya, on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea, is the target. Landings were made at Tripoli, Benghazi, Zwara, Sirt, Derna, and Tobruk. I only know about Tobruk because it's also a movie title, probably dealing with the same landings during <laughs> World War II. But the poster, was it's a universal movie, so the poster is on the wall of my office. The local population, fighting on many fronts, made fierce and resolute resistance to the invaders, thus bringing the war to a stalemate. 1922 saw a dramatic change in Italy. The beginning of Mussolini's era of dictatorship. The conflict in Libya escalated as more and more fascist might was thrown against the stiffening resistance of the local population. The title tells us that the characters in this film are real and the events are based on historical facts. We start in 1929 as a line of men are killed by firing squad. Rod Steiger as Benito Mussolini is presented with photographs of the executions and asked why we're still killing Bedouin if we won a war against them. In the name of accuracy, they apparently tracked down the same barber who shaved Mussolini's head to shave Steiger's head. Is that necessary? <laughs> They're both bald. Mussolini stands at the head of one of those enormous map tables in a room wallpapered with huge Renaissance-era paintings. You know, those war rooms that you see in movies. He thinks his officers are embellishing their victories if there's so much enemy left to fight. He gestures to a green section of the map and demands it from his men. The rest is brown paper. Just needs someone bold enough to roll it up. He calls to Graziani, played by Oliver Reed, to follow him for a private conversation, and by private I mean speaking in front of dozens of soldiers lining elaborately decorated hallways holding daggers in the air, like they each have a tiny knife yeah. that they're holding straight up above their heads. He asks for the leader of the Bedouins, and Graziani answers, Omar Mukhtar. Mussolini wants him brought here and crushed. Together, they head to an even larger map room with what seems like a severely outdated world map on the wall. Yeah, I, I'm hoping that this is just a historical Yeah, that they purposes. just left up. Yeah. I, yeah, I hope you're not using this for, for travel purposes. Amusingly, in the chair behind the desk, Mussolini's feet don't reach the floor, and they swing with childlike abandon. <laughs> Mussolini reiterates that Italy is too large a country to be held back by the Bedouins. He puts Graziani in charge of the Libyan invasion. Uh, I, I, unless Mussolini is referring to uh the territory that italy has acquired yeah. during world war ii as too large of a country uh libya is six times larger <laughs> than italy yeah so uh I, I i'm assuming he must be incorporating power instead all, of all that new territory that they've taken yeah yeah because at this point their stance is that it it is as much their country as as any right. of of you know british or french territories you know in and it's an Africa. attitude that carries through the rest of the film yeah. that they keep just referring to well libya is is it's italian libya yeah. yeah may i say my duce that when i crush rebellion i do so with a clear conscience facility. he asks about mukhtar before the war apparently he was a teacher be careful you don't end up as the five who went before you taught by him he tells Graziani to leave for Libya immediately and to return with Mukhtar by bribe or violence. We cut to a classroom with Mukhtar observing. He interrupts the teacher to speak to the students about the Koran and the importance of mercy and balance, but the kids are all distracted by an approaching procession of some sort. Eventually Mukhtar excuses them and they all race away excitedly. 
A young girl is given a tray of tea to deliver to a circle of older men, and she too is distracted by whatever mini-parade has rolled into town. There's lots of music and dancing going on. A man arrives in town on horseback with a rifle, and he asks to speak with Mukhtar. He informs him that a new governor is inbound. Uh, who is it this time? Graziani, the butcher of Fazan. Mukhtar doesn't seem intimidated and shares his father's old saying, a simple paraphrase of that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger. My father used to say, blows that don't break your back, strengthen it. We will show Graziani some spine. He asks when Graziani is expected, and the man says that Benghazi is being decorated for a welcoming party right now. And we cut to that party, which comes to a sudden halt with Graziani's arrival, and they all sing him a song in unison. Everyone hails Mussolini, but Graziani gives them permission to continue the party. Gentlemen, thank you. But the ladies are present. We should be at our ease. Let the dancing continue. The party continues, and two men on the outskirts argue with each other over whether their actions constitute violations of the Geneva Convention. We get a weird shot here as Colonel Diodici is introduced to Graziani, and Grazi's mouth is moving at the beginning of the shot, but he's not saying anything. I feel like they just needed a reverse angle yeah. and they used a different part of a take where he was speaking and they forgot. He criticizes Diodici's reputation as a Bedouin whisperer, insisting that they should bow to our every order. Graziani sees a bearded man across the room, played by John Gilgood, and asks who he is. Apparently, this is an old friend of Mukhtar's who they rely on for consultation and has proven himself valuable. Graziani asks to speak with him, and he's introduced to Sharif Elgariani. Do you recall the last time we had John Gilgood playing a Middle Eastern character? Caligula? No, more recently than that. Sphinx! Ah. Remember he had the little shop? He was arguing with John yeah. Rice Davies? Mm. Graziani asks what it might take to force Mukhtar's surrender, and he doesn't have an answer. Graziani tells El Gariani that he would be handsomely rewarded for one, but I'm sure this isn't the first offer he's gotten. It's just like, oh, have you guys tried this? Hey, uh, how do we win? Yeah. I, I don't know. Okay, I'll give you money if you tell me. I I don't know. I'm not, I don't know how to win. It's worth a shot. A man crosses the party with an urgent message for Graziani, and Graziani chastises him for disrupting the guests with the announcement. Graziani is further upset by the content of the message, which announces a recent failure on the battlefield. Mukhtar was captured and then released, leaving in his wake 20 dead and 50 injured Italians. I don't know if it seemed this way to you guys, but Oliver Reed seems at least mildly intoxicated during this scene. <laughs> his whole face is bright red, and he's slurring his words, and his line reads are just a bit off. Yes, but this time he was seen. He was seen? How do they know he was seen? Nobody knows him. How do they know he was seen? It was only for a moment, sir. But they're sure. It was Mukhtar. I suppose I should decorate them just for the bravery of seeing Mukhtar. Then we cut to him in his office, and he's still a raving lunatic. Yeah, could be there, could be, could be anywhere. Hmm. <laughs> he tells his men they need to be hitting harder and more consistently. Until now, the pattern has been periods of war, periods of peace, rotating every three months. But the peacetime ends now. We cut to the village where we met Mukhtar, and a group of girls are splashing each other with well water, completely oblivious to the incoming military vehicles. Eventually, everyone runs for cover. The men are lined up in the streets, and random groups of them are apprehended from the crowd and locked into a chain gang. The man in charge explains that in place of the usual three-month break, they will be sent to labor camps. The rest of the soldiers move into every home in the village and remove bags of grain, which they pile in the village square, douse in gasoline, and set on fire. An injured man is dragged out of his home by the soldiers. He has a bandaged bullet wound in his leg, and they accuse him of being shot while working with Mukhtar. The man does not respond to the accusation, and he is ordered executed. An older man tries to intervene to buy the man enough time to say his final prayers and is slapped to the ground before the bullet-wounded man is shot in the face. More men break free of soldiers and run to the dead man but are cut down by machine gun fire. The dead man's grieving widow is taken away by soldiers as they leave the camp. The son of the man who was slapped to the ground begs his mother for permission to avenge him. Oh, God! I must do something! We also learn that David here, who was shot in the face just now, was his brother-in-law, 
and his sister was also taken on top of slapping his father into what looks like a coma like he's just sort of dazed in a bed yeah we see graziani's forces moving through deserts and jeeps mukhtar's forces do the same on foot sleeping in what little shade they can find they wake up one day to the sound of approaching jeeps and race their horses away from the rocks into the empty flat depths of the desert a jeep comes around the rocks in search of them and finds only hoof prints in the sand still a promising lead and they follow mukhtar into the desert when Mukhtar's men finally recognize the approaching jeeps on the horizon, they get their horses running. Back at the rock formation, a lone soldier finds a bunch of horses left together in an enclosed part of the rock formation. I wasn't sure what the implication of this was. I get it now. Well, yeah, yeah I, I guess. I'm surprised he put it together so quickly. Yeah. yeah. But when he sees all these horses, he tries to deliver the word to Graziani's men that they're heading into a trap. The man racing after them fires a weapon as a warning... And they hear it, but they continue their pursuit, believing that Mukhtar is within their grasp. Suddenly, dozens of additional men rise up from the sand on both sides of the path that the jeeps are following. They fire on Graziani's men over and over, and Mukhtar and his men hear the shots and turn around to join the fight. Many of the jeeps are loaded with explosives and only take a single shot to explode. Most of the tanks are so poorly piloted that they're just crashing into each other yeah. and toppling into the sand. Well, I think all the explosions are all the vehicles carrying extra fuel. Right. Because I thought the plan was that they were going to lead them out into the desert and they were just going to... Get just stranded gonna there? Get stranded, yeah. They're not going to have enough fuel to return. Yeah. This uh, section reminds me a little bit of uh, the big red one when they're uh, trying to evade the forces and they just dig themselves into oh. the yeah, ground yeah. to try to avoid them. And then they're just getting smashed. Yeah, luckily these guys didn't get smashed. Yeah, they, they follow the hoof prints very carefully down the desert. Every last one of Graziani's men are taken out except for the last jeep, the man firing the warning shots. One of Mukhtar's men takes aim and fires on the jeep, killing one of the last three surrendering men. We do not kill prisoners. They do it to us. They are not our teachers. Mukhtar gives the prisoner driver a flag that he tore off of one of the toppled jeeps, and he tells the man to return it to General Graziani. Tell him it does not belong here. Mukhtar and his men return to their people and grand applause. A young boy and his mother search the crowd for someone apparently missing, and the music gets dramatic when they recognize the arrival of the man's empty horse. This was not a flawless victory. The mother tries to comfort her son, and later she goes to speak with Mukhtar. He offers her husband's book to her son, who in turn gives it to her. Mukhtar speaks to the child, who playfully takes Mukhtar's glasses to wear for a moment before returning them. We cut back to the offices of Graziani, who's just receiving word of the embarrassing defeat in the desert. He grants the lone survivor the Medal of Honor for bringing the flag back as though it weren't on Mukhtar's orders. Like he's like, thank goodness that you were there to collect this flag and return it to us so that we were protected like they're playing capture the flag and not mm -hmm. war which really is just capture the flag <laughs> yeah well do you have a flag he announces a change in tactic they will move all the bedouin people into concentration camps fill their wells and burn their fields until mukhtar and his soldiers are ferreted out graziani asks if his men have any questions and one offers general bedouin die in cages that is nonsense. Not a question. Some of the men seem particularly disturbed by this plan of action, but go along with it regardless. We see men lined up in villages condemned as rebels. The captain of this force walks behind the line, counting them, and shoots every tenth man in the head. Unfortunately for him, the thirtieth prisoner is a young boy, and he doesn't have the heart to do it, so he kills unlucky number 29 instead. We see the same men setting fire to Bedouin camps and filling their wells with concrete before marching them off to camps. Just as Graziani hoped, Mukhtar worries that innocent people are paying the price for his rebellion. He moves through a burned-out village and sees the charred rubble of the class he audited earlier. The class he audited? Yeah, he's not paying tuition there. <laughs> he was teaching the class, wasn't he? He was. Yeah, he was. He wasn't the teacher. There was a teacher there. He just jumped in with some factoids. Hey, you know what the Quran says? He's a guest speaker. He's not. He's not. A he's learning. Class. <laughs> Mukhtar leads a force toward where all the Bedouin prisoners are being held. They defeat the men guarding the prisoners and release their people. Among the saved prisoners is the young boy whose father was recently killed. More Italian jeeps rattle up to the camp and prisoners scatter in all directions. 
The jeeps fire on Mukhtar's men and the prisoners, killing many. The young boy is running through the fray and narrowly avoids being run over when he suddenly just flops down into the sand unconscious in the path of a second vehicle. I think he got sideswiped by it. I couldn't tell because he doesn't seem yeah. injured later. It looked like he got smacked, as, as which is why he fell down. Maybe. But uh, his mother grabs him out of the path of the second vehicle, but he looks pretty dead. Omar is urging his men to safety when his horse rears up on two legs and drops him in the sand as enemy vehicles continue to approach. The horse runs off, and another man offers Mukhtar his horse and stays behind to meet his fate at the hands of the enemy. The Italian tanks cannot maneuver well in the sand, and the rest of the prisoners are able to escape. The kid that um, that stays behind is the same one whose um, father was... Slapped her. Yeah. 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 We cut to a much larger concentration camp in the desert for a moment before we cut to a man who gave up his horse for Mukhtar. It's the young man who lost a brother, sister, and father to the Italian invasion. He's being slapped around and interrogated, and they ask if he would consider working for them. When he refuses, Graziani orders him fed whatever he asks for and hung in the morning. In another map room, Graziani indicates his plan to conquer miles and miles of empty desert. What can you get from it? Glory for Rome. An extension of the empire, confining a revolution to that mountain. My name a new page in military history can you remember another movie where oliver reed was in the desert and wanted to please rome <laughs> nope gladiator oh there you go it was like his whole conversation of like when he's like rome is like oh i've heard this speech from oliver reed before <laughs> <laughs> it, we didn't do that on the podcast so no, no, I no, have no. Not the movie doesn't movie. exist yet yeah uh, I've only ever seen movies that are okay. we've oh, reviewed. You've not seen Gladiator? <laughs> I haven't. Oh, yeah. oh, you haven't? No. I have. I just forgot. Yeah. All, yeah. Uh, all of every last movie, he dies during the he died during the production. Technically, there's a credit after that on IMDb, but he did die while they were making yeah. it. Another officer is invited into the room, Diodici, the supposed Bedouin whisperer. Graziani instructs him to approach Mukhtar to begin peace talks, assuming he must be tired of fighting them after 20 years. We cut right to the beginning of the peace talks, Mukhtar asks for foreign witnesses to the peace talks, and an official on Diodici's side argues against it, insisting that this is now Italian territory and not an international peace talk. Mukhtar reminds him that there's no point in pretending that the Bedouins are Italians just because Italy wants their land. Mukhtar requests a national parliament for his people, and the same man pipes up insisting that that's Rome's call, and not what they're here to discuss. Diodici offers, at the very least, to record the request. Yeah, see, yeah, like he's like, oh, so we'll, we will take your grievances. Yeah. to to Rome. <laughs> we'll get back to you in three to five weeks. <laughs> the third request is an obvious non-starter. The confiscated lands must be given back. Well, now I wouldn't say confiscated lands. I would say lands reserved for settlement and cultivation. Lands to be developed. To be developed by Italians. Team Italy tries to make the invasion look like an incredible employment opportunity, and all you have to do is call yourselves Italians. The jerk from Team Italy says he has it on good authority that not surrendering is against their religion, and Mukhtar says that's a lot of nonsense. With no progress made, this meeting is adjourned. More troops and tanks arrive at the front. At a second peace meeting, Mukhtar is read the terms of an agreement by Diodici. He says Mukhtar will serve under orders of Italian officers and that Mukhtar will have no power to protect anyone charged of any crime. The only thing they're offering is a house for Mukhtar and 50,000 lira a month pension. It finally occurs to Mukhtar that these peace talks have just been a distraction while Graziani landed more troops and moved them to Kufra, a power center of the country. Mukhtar says that the best strategy now is to attack Italy from the north and lure them away from Kufra. The city itself would be impossible to defend. Mukhtar's second-in-command announces his departure because his family's in Kufra and he must see that they're safe. We cut to Kufra in the midst of an air raid, and the footage is actually pretty terrifying. Yeah. Bombs are going off very near actors, including child actors, and structures are being knocked over left and right, burying people in rubble that looks real enough to at least hurt yeah. and and horses are like Ugh. jumping over explosions yeah multiple horses are blown up in this sequence like yeah. up until this point of the movie i'm like all right 
not my favorite kind of thing. Like, you know, historical drama, okay. But once you start blowing up horses, I'm like, I can't. I can't. This movie is it's losing me here. It's just... And I know we sort of forgave Heaven's Gate for this, but that was an accident that happened on set. And it did get left in the cut of the movie, but I, di- I didn't see it. I just know that it was there because people say that it stayed in the movie somewhere. But I don't. I never saw a horse explode in that movie. But here, it's center frame, and it's clearly obvious on purpose. And it's multiple horses. Yeah, it's yeah. not just one horse accidentally happened to blow up. It's like they're doing this on purpose. And this isn't the only time. Like, they, I mean, mm-hmm. this is where we have explosions. But there are so many horses in this movie, and they are constantly being flipped and tripped and rolled over and i i don't know like maybe even shot like it's pretty convincing when yeah. some of these horses go down and there's fire going on around yeah it. also there's like a tank that bursts through a wall and this guy grabs these two kids and runs yeah. away from it <gasps> yes. i was like what yeah it's it's terrifying that's some that's some gorp craziness right yeah there. exactly exactly but i i'm uh i'm convinced that any one of these like horses getting blown up shots that you see is like take seven like they they just blew up horse after horse until they got it right for the first time we see general graziani on the battlefield mukhtar's man is there with his family and he stayed behind to guard the ruins as he sees his family off in another awful sequence we see an explosion go off directly under a running horse as it collapses probably dead seconds later we see it happen again under another horse and i officially hate this movie Graziani watches the carnage through binoculars and then gestures for what looks like a thousand soldiers and like 50 tanks to move forward and take the city. Some scenes from this film allegedly made use of more than 10,000 people, which I think it would be this shot where he's standing on the hillside and you just see vehicles for miles behind him. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe the, maybe the end sequence as well. That's possible. The tanks were all replicas built by museums specifically for the production. The rebels wait behind a line of trees until the soldiers are very close and then emerge to perforate the front line. Graziani orders the tanks to the head of their advance. Again, horses against tanks mean probably a dozen animals killed in this next sequence. One of the horse riders goes to dive from his horse and his leg gets caught in a strap and he just dangles on the side of the horse. Did you see that? Yeah, he's just dragged upside down behind the horse. I'm glad that computers will allow us to never again waste horses like this. I understand that this movie is trying to tell the story of some really horrible atrocities, but you don't have to commit more while making it. Yeah. That's it's it's so upsetting that you're losing your message. Yeah. Mukhtar's man shouts to the front line that they are all murderers and then he is hit with a hailstorm of bullets. Yeah, there, and there's a whole bunch of people like run over by tanks. Right. Just and, smashed and in half. Like, yeah. The young Italian Medal of Honor winner, who was the lone survivor of Mukhtar's surprise attack in the desert, is disturbed to see Italian officers walking through the battlefield finishing off survivors with a handgun instead of taking any prisoners. He is disgusted that his team doesn't offer the same mercy as their enemy. Behind the next dune, a long line of rebel soldiers are lying prone in the sand waiting for Italian forces to crest the hill. Unfortunately for them, tanks come over first, tearing through them first with machine gun fire and later with tank treads, and we see men crushed in half, spurting blood into the sand. The tanks continue forward, knock down every wall in the city, including a small room with a family inside, and again, the filmmakers clearly didn't care if they ran over a kid here, because yeah. you can tell from the shot there's no precautions being taken. It's just stupid filmmaking. The wall collapses with rocks, and a woman pushes the kids away, and the woman gets knocked woman, over by the wall. Yeah, the woman is, as far as I could tell, crushed with yeah. debris or a tank, and then a man barely escapes with the two children that he's just literally dragging as yeah and these are not dolls this is not american sniper with bradley bradley cooper just holding like a fucking teddy ruxpin and pretending it's a child these are real people in the shot that are yeah potentially getting killed by this tank (laughs) or or that scene in wonder woman 84 where she whips and tackles those two kids oh god i was like what (laughs) Uh, those kids are dead as shit the way you did that This whole movie isn't worth a single horse, and if one of these kids even got injured, that's reason enough to just shut the thing down and send everybody home. Movie's over. We see Graziani and his officers marching triumphantly through the rubble of Kufra to bombastic horn music. Graziani stands on a pillar and addresses his men. Gentlemen, this is Kufra. After the loss of Kufra, Mukhtar's men 
will have to reroute supply lines across the Egyptian border. He meets again with Gilgud's Sharif al-Gariani, who urges him to surrender rather than let the Italians kill them all. Gariani reminds him that they cannot win against a modern army, and Mukhtar responds, They take this land by day, but by God, we take it back by night. He even offers them a safe harbor in Egypt, and Mukhtar obviously refuses, and they part ways. We get a montage of dead prisoners being manhandled in the prison camps, piled into trucks, and then we cut to black and white stock footage of presumably the actual death camps from history, which is what that was, yeah. because Mussolini yeah. had all this stuff filmed because he wanted to document the process. Yeah. Smart. Yeah. And then later they can pretend like, oh, this is offensive to Italians, and it's like, they filmed it. There's footage of it happening. They did this. Historically, 200,000 Bedouin people were killed in these camps. At night, we see Mukhtar's army reach the fences of the camp. Women prisoners are running to the fence with bags of supplies that... So basically, the camp has to provide minimal food for these families to survive on in the death camps. And they're bagging up some of it to give to the fighters who have nothing. A woman prisoner runs to the fence to meet with them and hands over a bag to deliver to her son but she learns here that her son has been killed. She leans against the barbed wire to cry and slices up her forehead and blood drips into her tears. We see the mother and the young boy that we've been following in a tent together. He looks sick. He's covered in flies, maybe from the injury of having been sideswiped by the tank earlier. Guards enter the tent and drag out a woman at random. She kicks and screams against them, but nobody else even reacts to her kidnapping by now because there's nothing they can do. They're powerless. Another guard comes back to take the child's mother, and she's forced to hand it off to the woman who just learned her son was killed. The row of people dragged from their tents are chained together and presented to a kangaroo court that interprets their silence as a confession and sentences them all to death by hanging for being affiliated with Mukhtar's forces. Yeah, for providing supplies to the rebels. Right. They're all quickly marched to the gallows, and the Medal of Honor winner stands teary-eyed watching the proceedings. As the holder of a silver medal of honor, Lieutenant, you will have the privilege of giving the order for the execution. No! What did you say? You will do your duty, Lieutenant. I did not join the army to hang women, sir. Very well. For his insubordination, Lieutenant Sandrini is placed under arrest. The officer orders the executions in Sandrini's place. The mother is hung, and the child's new mother holds him tight. In Graziani's office, he is lecturing Sandrini for growing a conscience. Sandrini says that he is prepared to face a court-martial, but as the first soldier to be granted a Medal of Honor by Graziani, he would be embarrassed to see the hero he created drummed out of the service. Instead, he is transferred to the front lines in the mountains with the hopes that he will be killed in active duty. In the middle of the night, Mukhtar sends men over the walls of a fort where they move to unlock the gates from inside. They're successful, but they're killed in the process, and horses come flying through the gate into the fort, where they find an enormous stockpile of weapons and explosives. The explosives are tucked alongside enemy vehicles on site and torched so that they are blown to smithereens. Graziani makes plans for a retaliation, and we cut to Mukhtar's forces being flushed out with mustard gas and shot as they move through a clearing. They duck low behind a rock formation until they're able to locate the source of machine gun fire, and approach them from behind, taking them out. And I think taking the machine gun, because we see it again later, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Mukhtar's army has it. Well, and, and and one of the guys, when they attack the fort, says, load up some of this stuff. Cause I, right, I feel there's like, a lot of guns and weapons they could be using. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I mean, I guess they just don't have the ability to maintain the vehicles. Yeah, like, that makes it's sense. Like, it's, like, it's like, take a tank, take two. I mean, these tanks kind of suck on sand, though. Yeah. And they do make the point that Graziani says that he's the first person to use... Italy is the first country to use tanks in the desert. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it's stupid. <laughs> yeah, and also especially these tanks, which are very narrow and top-heavy. Top-heavy, yeah. So they, they fall over very quickly. Mukhtar's good friend is killed in this confrontation, and he removes his cloak to cover his fallen friend. At the same time, he accidentally drops the glasses that he needs to see. We cut two bombs exploding in the night. Mukhtar gathers that Graziani must be after the bridge if he intends to control the mountain roads, the next day, Graziani outlines his plan on a map spread over the hood of a car and jokes that Mukhtar will likely never figure out that they're after the bridge because he didn't go to their fancy military schools. Graziani calls his men forward across the bridge and soldiers are ordered ahead of the group to check the bridge for explosives. 
The scout car crosses safely and moves to check the next bridge. It's like they're checking the bridge for explosives, but they're only checking like the top. Yeah, it's and it's like, like I would put it at the base of the bridge. Yeah, bring I, the yeah. whole thing down. I'd be checking every square inch of this bridge. Mukhtar's men regret not blowing the first bridge, but he tells them to give the signal as the scout car crosses the second bridge. A signal can be heard by everyone, but the Italians don't know which angle to expect danger from, and least of all, do they expect it from above. Bombs are dropped from the neighboring cliff onto the vehicles waiting for the bridge. And by bombs, they're like clay jugs full of explosives, you know, yeah, that are lit on fire, light yeah. on fire and just drop. These are like, you know, the desert version of a Molotov cocktail. And they're aiming for the fuel cars first. Yeah. Rebel soldiers appear in every cave and cliff face in the mountains to fire on the immobilized Italian caravan. And suddenly their military school is looking about as useful as my Bachelor of Arts degree. Some cars speed ahead down the road only to encounter soldiers with stolen machine guns who fire through their windshields and send the cars careening over the cliffs into the ravines hundreds of feet below. I imagine those cars are still there today. Mm. (laughs) Nobody bothered to get those back. Graziani watches all this through binoculars. He pretends like he totally saw this coming and compares the enemy forces to mice that couldn't resist the cheese of attack. Did he not plan this? I don't know if he did. It seems like a huge waste of material if he saw it But coming. he was planning to get all of these guys into the mountains. And, and, and so I think he was trying to use his guys as bait to have them go up into the mountain to to attack them. I mean, it's possible, but they just seem totally unprepared for this attack. Well, before everyone is led out onto the bridge of uh, Graziani's forces... Graziani is looking at through his binoculars at all the different cave openings in the side of the cliff. Yeah. And after this attack starts, he's already got gun emplacements ready to start firing That's on true. those caves. So I, I think he he saw that that they're gonna be hiding out in these caves waiting for us to get stuck. Granted, he is taking a huge loss, but he has to present a target large enough. But why not inform those men where you think people are going to be shooting from so that they can be returning fire immediately. And also why wait so long to pull Mm. the trigger on it? He orders the caves full of rebels to be blasted with artillery fire and Mukhtar's forces are blown from the caves and tumble down the rocky ravine. He laughs about it like it was a great idea to let them fire on his men for 20 minutes before doing that. Like he lost so many vehicles because he didn't say to do that immediately. The tanks continue forward across the bridge, and we get a shot of Mukhtar and his advisors watching and then turning to regroup. A crowd of rebels on horseback race out toward the tank line and then hang a Yui, clearly an attempt to lead the tanks off course, but the Italians fall for it hook, line, and sinker. The tanks find themselves ambushed in a field where mines are suddenly detonated, remotely flipping tanks and soldiers high into the air. The rebels on all sides race in to fire on the remaining soldiers. We see Graziani watching the massacre, and I really wanted him to say, excellent, they fell right into my trap. (laughs) When Graziani sees that he has lost the battle, he finally makes an admission before his officers. He's good. He is good. This old man is good. We cut back to Italy, where Graziani moves through Il Duce's palace to report to the man himself. Mussolini seems very pleased with his progress, but Graziani is personally disappointed with their current situation, since progress is so grueling now. We're having problems with them being in the mountains. I don't seem to have an enemy to fight, yet their attacks are incessant. I mean, they have no form. If they had form, I could, I could meet them with form, but they have no, no continuity of movement, no, no fixed points of position. I haven't, however, come to my Duce empty-minded. I have a radical solution. His proposal for the region is a new Hadrian's Wall. Except that Hadrian used his walls to shut the barbarian out. I shall use mine to shut him in. He further proposes something like Australia's rabbit-proof fence, hundreds of miles of barbed wire to cut off supply lines from Egypt. We cut immediately to the plan being put in motion. Graziani is driven along the fence and shown its usefulness, as even now rebel corpses are tangled in its mass. Mukhtar's men are holed up in caves, listening to Benito Mussolini speak on the radio about the inevitable rise of fascism. They haven't received supplies in a full month. Mukhtar is clearly sick from something and keeps erupting in coughing fits. He blames the dust, but is reminded that he's been fighting in the same dust for 20 years. 
As Mukhtar's forces are moving over a hillside, they're suddenly peppered with gunfire and take refuge behind a rock line. Lieutenant Sandrini is among the Italians and is suddenly shot in the back by his commanding officer. Yeah. So they said earlier that he wasn't, they didn't want to court-martial him because they didn't want to sort of give him... It would a, be embarrassing. Cause well, it, it's, it's sort of give him a pulpit for like all of the things that he thinks is wrong with what this army is doing. And it would be made public that they're not, you know, following the Geneva Convention. So instead, they just put him out on a dangerous mission and... You know, when that didn't work, kill him. We'll kill him with you know our own guy when nobody's looking. Right. I'm I'm sure Graziani ordered this. Of course. The commanding officer moves down the line of dead rebels to verify the kills, and the last one rolls over and buries a knife in his chest before putting a bullet in his forehead. This was probably the most satisfying kill of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> I I was hoping it was going to be uh, uh, Sandrini. Like he was going to turn. They got around. to do that kill. Oh, like that'd be good like too. like and boom, just one last shot. Mukhtar rides away with what remains of his men, and his horse is shot out from under him. He comes face to face with an Italian soldier begging for mercy and refuses to shoot the man. He's quickly surrounded and taken prisoner. An Italian officer shouts at Mukhtar to shoot the Italian soldier that he encountered, but he refuses, and the man runs for his life. Mukhtar is put in shackles and led away to a cell, where Diodici comes to confirm his identification. He asks Mukhtar if he needs anything, and he asks for water to prepare for prayer, and to be unchained. They are hesitant to unchain him until Diodici demands it and claims responsibility. Omar Mukhtar is brought in chains to General Graziani's office. Mukhtar is made to wait while Graziani signs paperwork. He asks why Mukhtar fought for so long, and he says it doesn't matter. And you cared nothing about the ruination of your country. You are the ruination of my country. Mukhtar reminds Graziani that Italy has no right to Libya. Italy has as much right here as anybody else. He lists other imperial conquests of African nations as though they were all morally sound because they happened. <laughs> England has a right to Egypt, France to Tunisia, Algeria, Spain to Morocco. He slides a coin across his desk and asks Mukhtar to read it. It's a coin from Caesar's time, minted in Libya, and Mukhtar points out that many nations minted coins in Libya. They're all over the place in the sand. Graziani produces Mukhtar's spectacles and offers them back to him to aid him in reading the coin. Yes, it does have an interesting past. But don't try to buy too much with it today. Your money, like your glory, is not permanent. I really like that line. That it's like, oh, the coin had a message a long time ago that Libya was part of Italy, and it also said that it was worth this much amount of money, but it's neither of those things anymore. Well, yeah, and, and he, he lists all the different countries that have attempted to conquer this this land and they're all gone now yeah like all these ancient civilizations are long gone and you'll be gone one day too yeah it's like that line from catch 22 where he's just talking about oh why, why is america gonna last forever like of all the countries that have risen risen and fallen i also thought he was gonna play some kind of a trick like here's your glasses back and he's like oh well why are they your glasses now because i had them a second ago yeah <laughs> pull some kind of crazy minority report shit yeah Graziani naively asks how long it will take Mukhtar to arrange the surrender of his people, for some reason assuming that he lost his principles with his freedom. We will never surrender. We win or we die. And don't think it stops there. You will have the next generation to fight, and after the next, the next. As for me, I will live longer than my hangman. Graziani basically begs Mukhtar to beg for his life, and he refuses because even asking for permission to live is a surrender. Graziani calls his men into the room and orders Mukhtar photographed and then hung before his people. Well, and I like that uh, uh, Mukhtar says, by the way, don't tell anybody that I said I would surrender. Right. Like, don't don't lie about what I said in this room, in this private room private room yeah and he and, says i wouldn't lie and he, yeah, yeah he agrees to that yeah in court mukhtar confirms his age and his position as leader of the rebel forces attacking italian soldiers but stops short of confessing to betraying his country or torturing and killing prisoners mukhtar's defense attorney steps forward and despite being an italian soldier puts forth a defense that mukhtar never betrayed his country because as he stated 
He never submitted to Italian authority and never accepted money in exchange for agreeing to behave. Mm -hmm. The room is very upset with the argument because they don't have a defensible response. I declare that Omar Mukhtar never submitted to us, never took subsidy from us, never recognized our right to rule in this colony. He cannot, therefore, in logic or justice, be tried by us as a rebel. When we captured Omar Mukhtar, after 20 years of battles, we are morally obliged to deal with him as a prisoner of war. Mukhtar seems surprised that they would bother assigning him a competent defense. The council claims that his assignment here was defending Mukhtar against the charge of treason, and that, in doing exactly that, he has overstepped his orders. Mukhtar is sentenced to death by hanging tomorrow. Mukhtar's people crowd the sand to see their leader of 20 years led to the gallows. Before his sentence is carried out, he puts on his glasses and reads from his personal Koran. He takes the glasses off again before he is put through the noose. In the crowd, he sees the young boy, whose father died in his army, and he says a short prayer. Thank you, God, for letting me die at the hands of my enemies. He is hung, and his glasses hit the platform. Many people in the crowd raise their children for a better view of the passing of a great man. Diodici is brought to tears by the scene. The young boy collects the spectacles from the gallows and disappears into the crowd of his people. We hear an echo of Mukhtar's comment about outliving his hangman, and an epilogue reads, Omar Mukhtar still lives in the memory of an independent Libya. Soon after the fall of Mussolini, General Graziani was tried and imprisoned. He died in 1955. Well, uh, the unfortunate part of the Graziani was imprisoned uh, only for four months, and then he was released. Oh, well, really? That's great. Yeah. So they, they kind of <laughs> left that part out. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> he was, don't worry, he went to prison. For months. <laughs> I mean, that's that's more than most terrible people get. So yeah, they uh, yeah they they I think they uh, I can't remember the Wikipedia, but I believe they said his defense attorneys p- played the only following orders. Oh, okay. Defense. The Breaker Morant defense. Yeah, and it was just like, well, yeah, he wasn't he wasn't Mussolini, and he wasn't like a you know a a, a member of the parliament issuing the orders to the generals, right? Our director here was Mustafa Akkad. He also directed The Message in 1976. He's also a producer on most of the Halloween series from the first film through Halloween Resurrection. He and his daughter, Rima Akkad Monla, were in the lobby of the Grand Hyatt Amman in Amman, Jordan, on November 9th of 2005 when a bomb exploded, part of a series of hotel bombings that evening, and they were both killed. Jeez. So they weren't like a target specifically. No, just, they just happened coincidentally to be there. were there oh, yeah. at the time. Since then, Mustafa's widow and his sons have taken over duties for the Rob Zombie and David Gordon Green Halloween films, and he gets dedications uh, from both directors in their first installments. Hmm. Writer H.A.L. Craig wrote The Message for director Akkad, and also Airport 77 and Foxtrot. Additional material from David Butler, he also wrote Voyage of the Damned and Bear Island, which is not about bears on an island. Is it spelled B A R E? No. <laughs> oh, it's not about naked people on an Damn island. It. <laughs> naked and afraid. Apparently, the neither of these islands are ones I want to visit. Music was from Maurice Jar, who composed Lawrence of Arabia and Dr. Zhivago. In 1980, he scored Black Marble, American Success Company, Last Flight of Noah's Ark, and Resurrection. And he's back later this year for Choo Choo and the Philly Flash and Taps. Cinematographer Jack Hilgerd was the DP on Akkad's The Message and also DP'd Bridge Over the River Kwai and the 67 Casino Royale. Uh. <laughs> yeah, not as good. Our editor here was John Shirley. Before this, he cut Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Live and Let Die, Man with a Golden Gun, and after this, he cut King Solomon's Mines and Superman 4. Wow. Sure left a lot in Superman 4, huh? Yeah, but I like that he did both Ian Fleming Bond movies and Ian Fleming's Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Yeah. <laughs> Anthony Quinn was Omar Mukhtar. In 56, he's Quasimodo in Hunchback of Notre Dame. He's Ada Abu Tayyi in Lawrence of Arabia. He's in Zorba the Greek, The Message. He's Paul Gauguin in Lust for Life. He's Vivaldi in Last Action Hero. But I'll always remember him best from a movie I haven't seen yet called Ghosts Can't Do It. 
<laughs> um, I was going to say that uh, my first huge Anthony Quinn was from the first uh, films or TV movies of Hercules, the legendary journeys. Oh, is he on that? Yeah. He played Zeus uh, in like three or four or five. So of, he's Kevin Sorbo's canon father. Yeah. <laughs> on that uh, show. But not, but not once the show went to a show. Oh, interesting. Uh, Cause it started off as like a bunch of movies. Um, I and, didn't realize that. And once those became popular, the, the show took off. Did Sam Raimi do those as well? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So I was looking up the message. Yeah. And it's the epic historical drama that chronicles the life of, and times of prophet muhammad how do you do a muhammad movie he's just always out of frame yeah is that how it works <laughs> like because you can't show muhammad and i assume that it is uh respectfully done so i'm just curious how they do that he's just censored in every well show. i don't no, i'm looking and i don't see anybody in the credits as muhammad you know so i guess it's the life and times of muhammad but maybe it's all him. from his pov oh he's he, they just strapped a gopro anyway. to anthony quinn <laughs> that's definitely not true oliver reed played general rodolfo graziani he's bill sykes and oliver he's frank and tommy he's ben rolf and burnt offerings he's dr heckle and mr hype in our minisode review later this year and later this season he's also krakov in condor man one of his last credits was gladiator but my favorite role from him is vulcan from the adventures of baron munchausen yeah irene pappas played mabruka she was Maria Papadimos in The Guns of the Navarone alongside Anthony Quinn. Lion of the Desert was actually their seventh and final collaboration. They have seven movies together. Raph Vallone played Colonel Diodici. He was Cardinal Lamberto in Godfather Part Three and Altabani in The Italian Job, the original Italian Job. Rod Steiger played Benito Mussolini. He's Chief Bill Gillespie in In the Heat of the Night. He's Charlie Morrow in On the Waterfront. We talked about his work as Soapy Smith in our Klondike Fever minisode earlier this season, and we'll have him back as Tilgman in our very next episode, Cattle Annie and Little Britches. He had previously portrayed Benito Mussolini for the 1974 film The Last Four Days, and he's also General Decker in Mars Attack. <laughs> yeah. He's so great in that. John Gilgood is Sharif Elgariani. We've seen him now in Caligula, The Elephant Man, The Formula, and Sphinx. And he's back later this season for Chariots of Fire and Arthur. Stefano Patrizzi played Lieutenant Sandrini. He's Agrippa in Cleopatra. Adolfo Lestretti played Colonel Sarsani. He was Fenucci in Godfather Part II. Sky DeMont played Prince Amadeo. He's Hessen in Boys from Brazil. And Sandor Javost in Eyes Wide Shut. Takis Emmanuel played Boo Matari. He appeared alongside Anthony Quinn in Zorba the Greek in 64, and he's also in The Golden Voyage of Sinbad. Robert Brown played Al-Fadil. He took over the M role when Bernard Lee passed away, starting with Octopussy and View to a Kill, and then finishing with Timothy Dalton's pair Living Daylights and License to Kill, and then was swapped out with Bond when Judy Dench and Pierce Brosnan took over the parts. Claudio Gora played President of Court, he was Dr. Mabuse in The Death Ray of Dr. Mabuse. Giordano Falzoni played Judge at Camp. That's the guy who says, you're all going to get hung because yeah. you're not saying anything. He played Charlie in Lucio Fulci's Contraband and Dr. Barry Jones, the coroner in Fulci's The New York Ripper. George Sweeney played Captain Biaggi. He was Lou in Guy Ritchie's Revolver. He's also an uncredited helicopter pilot in For Your Eyes Only later this season. Essen Gounet played the narrator. That's the voice who speaks like newsreel style at the beginning of the film. He, he was Jerry Kwan in Battle Creek Brawl. I think that was uh, his brother. I think that's right. Kwan was the family name. Angelo Ragusa played Italian soldier. He has mostly stunt work, but he's also a prisoner in Enzo Castorelli's The Inglorious Bastards. He's back next season in Contamination and Zombie Holocaust, and he plays Leech in 1990, The Bronx Warriors in 1982, and then in 83, he appears in Thor the Conqueror as Thor's father, Cunt. Okay. <laughs> That's his name. <laughs> Cunt with a K is Thor's father in the movie Thor the Conqueror from 1983. That feels inaccurate and weird. It's foreign. But that's a weird way to spell Odin, if you ask me. Right? <laughs> so there's a 
canon father for Thor. You didn't have to make up a name. Those are all the credits I had for this one. This movie blew up a few horses. Uh, and I won't watch it again. But I think it gets a thumbs up because it's a well-made story. And it honestly, for how long was it? Two hours and 53 minutes? Yeah. It Nearly goes, it hours. went pretty quick for me watching it. Not for me. <laughs> I I had I had two two solid sittings. It was three for me. I don't think the pacing was bad. Though. No, I don't think the pacing was bad. It's just it's very long, and and you go through the story fairly quickly because really, honestly, there's not a lot of of like things that happen. Like the, yeah. like most it's of these shots though are just forth. really long. Mm-hmm. So these sequences go much much more beyond your description i don't know i really am struggling with this one because like you say it's it's a very well-made movie Mm -hmm. the acting is fabulous all around everyone did a great job uh it's it's well shot it's beautiful um super informative because i you know this is not a conflict i was aware of yeah i didn't know anything about this and so i feel incredibly grateful to have been made aware of thank you Qaddafi. but i never ever want to watch this movie again yeah so i just don't know how to rate it i i don't know if i would never watch this movie again um i i was very impressed by it it, it wasn't what i expected um uh, i know i always that those those run times always like freak me out uh but uh, I remember I I watching it when I was watching it. Uh, there were a lot of times when I went, "Oh shit!" Like when all those tanks were getting blown up and crashing into each other on that desert, that first desert conflict. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, "Damn, they're just going all out wrecking stuff." Um, but yeah, then obviously a lot of uh, dangerous stunts involving animals and children. Yeah, uh, the kids one is crazy because. It's clearly one of the tanks that they're using, like one of the tank props that they built. They didn't build yeah. like a styrofoam tank to push through styrofoam rocks. They just drove a tank through a wall and there's kids and a woman on the other side of it. And everyone gets out of the room except for the woman because it seems like it was timed wrong. And if the kids hadn't gotten out of the shot, then, you know, this is like a Twilight Zone situation. It's just a yeah. nightmare. Um, and, and also just unnecessary. Yeah. Like, I mean, I get that there are kids here and, and you're trying to show that they these kids are in and in danger and are die and or are dying. Right. Um, we don't have to kill the kids in the movie. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah. So like both, like both of you, I, I knew nothing of this conflict and uh, it, it's heartbreaking. You know, he's like 200,000 people died in these concentration camps. And, uh, but uh yeah, so I, I, I think the movie was very well made, and I, I would check it out again. Um, probably not for a while. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it. Like, like you guys said, it's nice to be informed and to have this yeah. knowledge, but I wouldn't buy a textbook that was made out of horses. So, <laughs> I, and, and, and But I'm still just astounded at the box office. Like, Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, it's been a long time since I've watched Lawrence of Arabia, but that doesn't paint a lot of people in a very positive light. No. Um, and on on both sides, you know. But it wasn't financed by Gaddafi. Correct. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I guess that that is the the big thing. I, I mean, it must have, like you said, been theater owners saying, "No, I don't think we're going to play that dictator's movie." Like without even watching it, just saying, "Yeah, probably not. Probably not what we're looking for." But he had enough money to throw at all these huge names and be like, "Be in my movie." And apparently. Uh, the real life Omar Mukhtar bore a striking resemblance to Anthony Quinn. So it was like really brilliant casting. Yeah. Um, Can I give it a thumbs middle? I really, I'm torn on this one because I just, it's, it's well-made and it's very informative, but I just. You know what though? I've read Saddam Hussein's romance novels and they're also great. (laughs) So just because someone's a dictator doesn't mean we have to thumb our nose at their work. Right. Okay. You can give it a thumbs up. We're not going to judge you just because they blew up some horses. Okay. I'll give it a thumbs up. It's not up. your fault that they did that. Right. But it's and also... voiced our I guess, objections I guess I'm it. already uh, prefacing this because it's really low on my list because I don't want to watch it again. Yeah. No, that's fair. Um, where is this on your list? Yeah. I mean, I feel like it'd be pretty high if you edited it 
a little bit and and you didn't blow up horses but right now (laughs) yeah i would just take three shots out of it two horses exploding and a wall collapsing it doesn't need to be three hours um i mean it's a war movie so there's a rule but this is why i don't watch them um it is 33 out of 45 for me it is below maniac and above back roads all right richard what are you thinking uh i have it at uh 14 okay so i have it pretty pretty up there um it's it's gonna go down <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. i know there's a lot of stuff that's gonna be coming up there um but i have it just below eyewitness and just above cavemen i have it in 21st place which is just under the fun house and just above Nighthawks. I think that's everything for Lion of the Desert. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Or as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord now. Join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Catalani and Little Britches, which IMDb describes like so. In 19th century Oklahoma, two teen girls who love stories about outlaws are on a quest to meet and join up with them. They find a shadow of a former gang, and although disappointed, still try to help them escape from a vigorous marshal. We leave you now with a trailer for Catalani and Little Britches. Hey, you're right. Long and hard. Cadillac and a wall.